and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen, and welcome to another edition of 10 Good Minutes. On these short explainer-type episodes, I dive into some specific content related to the ideas that we explore on the podcast. And particularly, research tends to come up a lot. Research in psychology and the social sciences, and broadly, what we can do to be a happier and healthier person over time. Some pieces of research become really famous. For instance, you might have heard about the marshmallow experiment, or the 10,000-hour rule, or the Dunning-Kruger effect, the Stanford prison experiment, or maybe willpower fatigue. These are some of the most well-known pieces of research from the social sciences. They've spawned thousands of books, and TED Talks, and think pieces, and mentions from your favorite pop psychology creators, whether that be podcasts, or YouTube, or whatever else. There's just one problem with all of those pieces of research that I just mentioned. None of them are accurate. Or at the very least, they're not quite as simple as the one-sentence summary that you may have heard online makes them appear. And this is actually a symptom of a larger problem that's facing the social sciences. It's shockingly common for all kinds of holes to be found in research that becomes really popular, but popular belief in the theories behind that research are rarely updated. So in today's podcast episode, I'm going to be going through some of that research and explaining the issues with it. I'm also going to talk a little bit at the end about the broader problem, which is known as the replication crisis, that is facing the social sciences today. This episode is actually based on a video that I just posted on my YouTube channel. If you'd like to check it out, you can go to youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. Or you can just follow the link to the video in the description of today's podcast episode. If you like the podcast, I think you'll enjoy my channel. And if you're more of a visual learner, it might really help you out. Okay, let's get into the episode. Let's start with the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is a cognitive bias in which people with low ability tend to overestimate how good they are at something. There's a graph of it that you might have seen on social media. People start knowing very little, but being very confident in their ability. That's sometimes known as the peak of Mount Stupid. And then that confidence shrinks dramatically once they realize how challenging something is that they initially thought was simple. Over time, as their competence grows, their confidence is regained. And as you might expect, individuals with more narcissistic personality traits tend to be the worst at estimating their ability accurately. And perhaps connected to that, people from higher social classes also tend to be less accurate than those from lower social classes. Or at least all of that's the theory. And it's a really interesting idea. And anecdotally, which to be clear is kind of code for I'm really biased and this idea confirms some of my pre-existing beliefs about the world, but it sounds kind of cool and I'm going to believe in it without having much evidence, it matches my personal experience. But Dunning-Kruger is a good example of how an idea from the social sciences can become both extremely popular while also being incredibly misused and arguably just plain wrong. The problem is that there were massive methodological issues with the research performed in the initial paper. Follow-up research revealed that most of the initial results could be attributed to random noise that resulted from the modeling approach taken by the researchers. When this noise was accounted for, researchers found that about half of the people in the original data set assessed their abilities actually pretty accurately, and two-thirds of the remaining total were at least in the ballpark. Only about 6% of participants were extremely overconfident, 
and even the least skilled groups showed no real tendency toward overconfidence. There's additional research that was performed recently in 2020 that really drove a stake through the heart of Dunn and Kruger. In short, the idea here is mostly false. Just because you're not very competent does not mean that you're going to be really overconfident. Most people assess their abilities pretty accurately when push comes to shove. But the graph is kind of appealing, and it confirms a lot of people's pre-existing biases, so you'll find it all over social media, even though it's really not that hard to fact-check it at this point. Moving on from Dunn and Kruger, let's talk about the backfire effect. This is based on a 2010 study which suggested that correcting a person's false beliefs could actually cause them to believe in them more strongly. It tested a sample of 130 people who read a report from 2005 that documented Iraq's lack of weapons of mass destruction immediately prior to the U.S.'s invasion. After reading that report, participants were asked whether they agreed with a single, very political statement which was phrased a bit oddly. So here it is. Immediately before the U.S. invasion, Iraq had an active weapons of mass destruction program, the ability to produce these weapons, and large stockpiles of WMD, but Saddam Hussein was able to hide or destroy these weapons right before U.S. forces arrived. So it's a bit of a messily worded question, and it's not really all that easy to tell what it's trying to ask you. The initial study reported that conservatives who received a correction telling them that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction not only didn't change their opinion, they actually doubled down on their position. So they were more likely to agree with that statement after being exposed to the report than they were before reading the report. To put it really simply, they didn't update their opinion based off of new information. And probably at least partially because this painted conservatives in a really bad light, the research became a pop culture phenomenon. It was referenced in The New Yorker, and many a lengthy think piece was penned. It was a whole thing. The problem is that it's probably also wrong, or at least the research was pretty inaccurate. A very large follow-up study testing over 10,000 subjects on 52 different questions found only one, one instance of the backfire effect when the original survey item was used as originally phrased. When they rephrased the question more intuitively as following the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, U.S. forces did not find weapons of mass destruction, the effect vanished. And further research has consistently found that fact-checking does generally help people come to an accurate conclusion. There's evidence for maybe some small amount of backfire effect under certain conditions, and it seems maybe particularly possible that the backfire effect would arise when those questions are strongly tied to a person's identity. But again, generally speaking, this is a great example of a piece of research that became very popular and was later found to just not be true. In general, people really do update their opinions when exposed to new information. Okay, let's move on to a really famous one, the marshmallow test. You've probably heard of this one, which was a study on delayed gratification led by psychologist Walter Michel at Stanford. Children were offered the choice between one small reward, like a marshmallow, immediately, or two rewards if they were able to wait for a while. The children who were able to wait for longer periods of time were later found to have better life outcomes, including achieving higher scholastic performance and coping better with frustration and stress, to quote the report. Now, this research did have a wonderful side effect. It led to all kinds of adorable videos featuring torturing small children by forcing them to stare at a marshmallow 
they aren't supposed to eat. Because if they eat this marshmallow, they will probably be labeled as weak of will and be doomed for the rest of their life. If you can't tell, I'm exaggerating a little bit here because, again, this research was done in a way that was fairly inaccurate. The problem is that the original study included only 90 children, and those children were taken from around Stanford's very affluent area. A large and importantly much more diverse follow-up study of more than 900 children conducted in 2018 found that delaying gratification was only correlated with a very small increase in a child's future achievement, an increase that was essentially insignificant by the time that the child turned 15. But what the new research really found was that the ability to hold out for larger periods of time, waiting for that bigger reward, was mostly based on the child's family background and home environment. Children who came from easier circumstances, from wealthier and more educated families, were better at waiting. And any difference in future performance between the waiters and the non-waiters largely vanished once researchers controlled for socioeconomic status. So again here, we're seeing an example of how the design of a study and the kinds of people that it's pulling in can really affect the conclusions that we draw about the research. If you'd like some more questionable research coming out of Stanford, go Bears, you'll love the Stanford Prison Experiment. This study, conducted in 1971, tried to determine the psychological effects of becoming either a prisoner or a prison guard. It essentially tried to ask whether being put into those power roles would change the behavior of the participants. Would the guards become abusive? Would the prisoners become listless and apathetic or have psychological breakdowns? A mock jail was actually built into the basement of a building on the Stanford campus, and 24 participants were divided into guards and prisoners. The experiment was intended to run for a couple of weeks, but just six days in, it was canceled because the brutality of the guards had escalated and many of the prisoners had quit. This experiment is one of the most famous pieces of social science research ever conducted, and it's become this almost legendary cultural touchstone. An example of just how impacted our behavior is by the roles that we find ourselves in. Or perhaps even worse, it suggested that every person has this deep well of inner violence that's just waiting to be unleashed by them being placed into the wrong role. Here's the problem, though. The experiment was largely a sham. The guards were instructed to be abusive to the prisoners prior to the start of the experiment, and many of the prisoners have since gone on the record saying that their breakdowns were kind of manufactured in order to get out of it. The methodology of the research has been called into question by dozens of review papers, and follow-ups have been unable to replicate its results. And this is before we get into the, at best, questionable ethics of essentially abusing college kids in an attempt to confirm your biases about human nature. So again, Stanford Prison Experiment, this very famous piece of research, came to conclusions that were, at the very least, probably quite exaggerated. So if you've listened to a couple of these episodes, you already probably knew that the name 10 Good Minutes was really just a lie, and I knew that there was no way that I was going to get through this sucker in fewer than 20, but let's go for a bit of a lightning round here, or we're going to be here all day. So willpower fatigue, decision fatigue, or the depletion effect is the finding that the more decisions someone makes, the worse they get at making future decisions. In particular, they get worse at self-control. But research from 2015 that re-examined willpower fatigue found very little evidence that the depletion effect is a real phenomenon. 
And research from Carol Dweck found that decisions only sap our willpower if we believe that willpower is finite. In some cases, people who believe that willpower is not limited actually perform better after a challenging task. Okay, how about the critical positivity ratio? You might have heard of this one. It's based on work from Marcio Lusada and Barbara Fredrickson, which held that having at least a three-to-one ratio of positive to negative emotional experiences was a key contributor to whether people flourished or languished in life. Their research was published in The American Psychologist, and it attracted a ton of attention. It's been cited over 3,000 times. It led to a book, and the easily understandable three-to-one headline was a hit with pop psychology sites. Except there was a big problem. Lusada's mathematical model the ratio was based on was just plain wrong. The theory was taken down in the brutally titled 2013 paper, The Complex Dynamics of Wishful Thinking, the Critical Positivity Ratio. The paper highlighted Lasada's numerous fundamental conceptual and mathematical errors, and when he was given an opportunity to offer a correction or to kind of fight back, he chose not to. Okay, let's close with a big one. The 10,000 hours rule is maybe the most popular idea on this whole list. It comes from Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, where the original line was 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. To summarize real quick, Gladwell claimed that it takes about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to reach true expertise. This is based off of research performed by Anders Ericsson that was actually fantastic research that found that the individual ability of violinists at the Elite Music Academy in West Berlin was heavily correlated not to some kind of vague notion of innate talent, but instead to just the amount of deliberate practice that they had put in over the course of their life. Good professional violinists registered around 4,000 hours, very good ones 8,000, and the elite of the elite more than 10,000 hours. So that explains where 10,000 hours comes from, but the conclusions are pretty problematic. 10,000 hours isn't how long it takes you to get good at something, or even become a professional inside that field, or even reach what many people would consider expertise. 10,000 hours gets you to near-Olympic levels of performance inside an extremely complicated discipline that many people spend their whole lives attempting to master. I had the opportunity to talk about the issues with the 10,000-hour rule in more detail with Josh Kaufman on the podcast. He's the author of The First 20 Hours, How to Learn Anything Fast. Gladwell's misinterpretation of Erickson's work and the subsequent society-wide game of telephone that exacerbated things even further pissed Erickson off so much that he devoted a considerable portion of the rest of his career to firing potshots at Gladwell. These pieces of research, all of which have been debunked or re-examined or re-explained in some way, are symptoms of a larger problem facing the social sciences, the replicability crisis. One of the fundamental tenets of the scientific method is that research should be replicable. Different researchers should be able to perform the same experiment and arrive at similar results. Many of the studies published in medicine, the social sciences generally, and psychology in particular, have results that can't be replicated. The phrase reproducibility crisis can be traced to a paper in 2012, and it's been an ongoing issue in the field ever since. One major review conducted by the Social Sciences Research Project that was published in 2018 attempted to replicate 21 influential pieces of social science research that had been published in Nature and Science the two most prestigious general science journals. They found that of those 21 studies, only 13 could be replicated. 
even among the studies that were successful, their effect sizes dropped by about a quarter, which suggests that they significantly overestimated the strength of their findings. Research in the field of psychology has fallen under particular scrutiny due to its challenges with reproducibility. There's a project called Many Labs 2, which attempted to replicate 28 classic and contemporary pieces of published psychological research, and they were only able to find 15 statistically significant replications. Another attempted to replicate 100 and found that only 39 returned similar results. So to ballpark, this appears that only about half of the research in the field of psychology can be successfully replicated. So, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I'm a research guy. I like to quote a lot of research and have basically a scientific explanation for why I believe what I believe. Given the challenges here with reproducibility, should you take any of the research that I quote during the episodes seriously? Now, this is a complicated question that's kind of tricky to unpack. The short version is probably yes, but with a few caveats. Fortunately, a lot of research is indeed replicable. And I try to limit myself when I reference research to research that is pretty well validated. No one's going to be perfect. I'm going to have some misses, and I'm going to end up quoting some research that later gets invalidated. That's just kind of the reality of the field. But the more research that there is on a particular topic, the more confident we can be in the results of that research. One caution that I would give here about this territory is to avoid falling into false equivalents. The fact that some research is challenging to replicate doesn't mean that all research is invalid, or that the views of research scientists hold no more merit than the views of the general public. Again, occasionally, as these pieces of research show, there are going to be big misses. Learning more about these issues has only reinforced my belief in healthy skepticism. As everyone says, if something sounds too good to be true, well, it probably is. But to maybe put it a slightly different way, if it's really easy to reduce a complex piece of research into a simple soundbite, something's probably being left out. And that's my real takeaway from all of this. So that's it for today. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. Also, as a reminder, this episode was based on a video that I uploaded to my YouTube channel. You can find a link to my channel in the description of today's podcast. And if you like the podcast, I think that you'll really enjoy the content that I create for the channel. Also, if you're more of a visual learner, it might be a really good fit for you. If you like detailed dives into the science, well, you'll probably like our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. One of the things I do for the Patreon is I put together these detailed show notes that dive into the research behind each episode. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with another full-length episode. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>